So as you, if you've been coming, then you know that we're in a series in which we're all kind of learning how to, how to be a neighbor. You know, I've lived here in New York City for a long time, and, and I don't know that I have much to teach, actually, about being a neighbor at all. And so we're in a series as we're actually officially becoming neighbors uh, in this new space called Neighbor. Uh, we're in a series in which we're, we're trying to learn from the scriptures what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. And last week we looked at a passage from Luke 10 called uh, the Parable of the Good Samaritan. And in that, we, we learn that to be a neighbor is actually quite costly. It's going to cost your time. It's going to cost your money. It's going to cost your opportunities for you. It could very well cost us our lives. To be a neighbor from a biblical perspective is a very serious thing. It's a big deal. And um, yet, we're given a tremendous amount of assurance that as we lean into being neighbors of others, that whatever we lose, we will gain exponentially. Whatever we lose, Jesus will actually bring it back to us and more. And so that's what we learned last week. And this week, we're going to learn that to be a good neighbor is nothing less than an act of faith. To be a good neighbor is nothing less than trusting in God. And moving forward towards your friends, towards those who live around you, as an act of faith in him. And let's do that by, let's learn this general principle by looking at Mark 2. And I'm just going to read 12 verses here. Mark says this. A few days later, after Jesus had done a bunch of miracles, taught a bunch, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to, to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up. Take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. That's the word of the Lord. Pray with me again. Heavenly Father, it's good to keep turning to you in prayer. We need your help. Uh, would you help us learn about ourselves? Would you help us learn about you so that we might say what was said in this passage, that we might be amazed and that we might praise you as well? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd actually planned to use this as a teaching point before uh, James uh, was upset 
But I, so I don't want us to think about James when we think about it, but just think about ourselves, okay? And they was gonna, I was going to ask the question, have you ever experienced or heard the phrase, uh, that child is a willful child? Have you ever heard that phrase, that child is a willful child? Now, some of you have maybe said that to yourselves. Some of you have maybe heard that recently. Some of you are maybe remembering that being said about you. And what does it mean to be a willful child? To be a willful child means to assert your agency in such a forceful way that it's actually hard to assuage. It's hard to, to direct. It's hard to stop. Now, the Bible says every one of us are willful children. As human beings, we're given wills that's inseparable from us, that we have the right, the gift of, of agency, of decision-making, that a part of being a human being is that we're willful beings, that we assert our wills. And this passage is actually about a group of friends, a group of neighbors, who assert their will in a very forceful way. But what's interesting about the passage is how they do it and why they do it. They don't assert their wills for themselves, but they assert their wills so that their friend can get closer to Jesus. And what Christians would say is that kind of assertion of will is an act of faith. That's a, a gesture of faith, moving towards God to get closer to him, moving towards God to help somebody else get closer to him. That's all an act of faith. Now, what is this idea of faith? Well, it's very similar to the idea of the will, but I would say it's your will baptized by the desires of God. That sounds so Christian-y, doesn't it? It's your will persuaded by the beauty of God. Your will persuaded by the vision of what he has for you as a human being, what he has for our neighbors, what he has for the world. Your will, faith is your will persuaded by the beauty of Christ. And so a definition of faith in the scriptures is, is the classic one that's found in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews, we read that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the assurance of the things that we dream about. And, but more than that, it's the conviction of things not seen. So many of the things that we wish, many of the things that we dream about, we can't see. Right? We can't see, but faith is the assurance and the conviction of things not seen. And so one way to think about it as we look at this passage is that their demonstration is so palpable that Jesus actually says, I see your faith. I see your faith. And though faith, Christians have faith in a God that's unseen, our faith is, should be to the degree that we, that, uh, how would I say this? We believe in a God that you cannot see, but our faith should be so palpable that people are able to see, well, I can't even come up with a language, uh, that they should be able to trust in the God that they cannot see. Christian's faith should be so palpable that when looking at our lives, that people should be able to believe in the God that they cannot see. So that's what we see here. Jesus says, I see your faith. 
And I think if we look at this passage, we can see their faith too. And I think we can see it in three ways. Their faith is demonstrated in their radical, that radical access is pursued, that radical friendships are supported, and that radical power is embraced. So radical access is pursued, radical friendships are supported, and radical power is embraced. So first, radical access is pursued. I feel in some sense that I'm saying this over and over again because this happens over and over again. Jesus is surrounded by a throng of people who are really attracted to him, who are really curious about him. They have all kinds of doubts. They have all kinds of concerns. They're bringing their suffering to Jesus of Nazareth. Now, he has been doing all of these miracles. He's been healing the sick. He just healed a leper. And the, the passage immediately before this says that his fame begins to increase. His fame begins, begins to increase. And, you know, there's a saying that's about fame that may apply in this particular situation. I think it applies to our lives in, in some sense. And that is, fame is when you, there's degrees of fame. You walk into a room and when you're famous and somebody will know you. A second degree of fame is when you walk into a room and everybody knows you. But this quote says, the greatest degree of fame is that when you walk into a room and everybody knows you, but they can't believe it's actually you. I think there's some parallel between the fame of God and the life of Jesus. That when you look at him, you can't help but see the thing that you have never seen and, and you can't, it's a hard time to believe that this could be actually the God that we have never seen. And so they come to him and they're surrounding this particular house. And one of the, uh, and what, what is said of, of this experience is that there's no room left for anybody to enter in. So all the people are there, they're coming into every nook and crevice of this house. There's no room, not even in the doorway, it says. And because of that, these men have to actually work around and get up onto the top of the roof. And, and of course, what do they do? They dig right in. But let's just pause for a second. And let's compare this scene at the start of Jesus' ministry with another scene at the start of Jesus' life as it relates to no room. You know, in, at the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph are traveling, right? They're registering for the census. They're en route. And she's about to go in labor. And so they go to a house, uh, uh, like a, an inn, and they hope to get into this inn. And yet, what does the innkeeper say? The innkeeper says, there is no room. There's no room for them. Last week, we looked at the Good Samaritan. And it's a story about a man who's been beaten to death and a neighbor comes and he takes him to where? An inn. And it's kind of a redemptive story. And in this instance, the innkeeper does exactly what all innkeepers should do from a heavenly perspective. He creates room. He becomes the most hospitable person a person could be. Money is not the issue. He becomes a great neighbor. And so here we see this passage is not a coincidence that they're talking about a lack of room. Because in the Bible, one of the main themes of the Bible 
is that a lack of faith always is demonstrated, or not always, oftentimes is demonstrated by a lack of hospitality. To have great faith is to be a person who's, who creates room. And so here we have this scene, this picture. Jesus is no longer on the outside. He's in the inside. And what is he doing? He's making room. He's making room so people can get close to him. He doesn't want anybody to be shut out. Come in to every nook and cranny. Just keep coming. Fit as many as you can in. What happens when the roof is torn off this place? Does Jesus get ruffled? Does he say, that's, uh, that's inappropriate, please do not do that? Uh, this is an insane gesture. No, Jesus actually acts like he's been waiting for that to happen. As if he says, yes, that's right. That's a, an appropriate gesture. You should do everything you can to get close to me. He affirms that action. Now, we have these things called neighborhood groups. Some people host them. And I want to say that sometimes when we read the Bible, there are things that are prescribed and things that are described. And the things that are often described in the Bible are not necessarily prescribed for you and I today. So you hosts of neighborhood groups, we are not prescribing to make room that people rip off the roofs of your houses as a sign of faith. But we are prescribing. Get creative. Get innovative. Make room so that people can have radical access to Jesus. Do whatever it takes. Host a group. Join a group. Hive off a group. Whatever it takes. As a sign of radical faith, make radical access for Jesus. That's the point. That's the first point. Oh, let me just, Henry Nowen speaks, says a little bit about hospitality. He says that it's, hospitality is not about changing people, but it's, it's offering them a space so that they can change. As willful children, we know that we are so limited. It's about creating opportunities so that actually people can do business with God. It's about being, creating opportunities and places so that they can be in the presence of God. And of course, that's what neighbor is all about. Radical access. Now, of course, when you think about what we're trying to do over there, people might say, that's way too expensive. That's way too costly. That's inappropriate. That's an inappropriate gesture. But if we look at this passage, we have to say, no, 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 that's exactly the kind of faith that comes out of actually experiencing the grace of God. You know, faith demonstrated looks like faith received. And what I mean by that is Jesus is not shocked by what they do because that's what he did. You know, if you believe that the story of Christmas, then you know that Jesus tore the roof off of the world and came down into it. So that we could have access to him. And the whole idea of this neighborhood project is to say, hey, we're, we're incarnating in the neighborhood. We want to make more room. The second thing that, they talk, they, that we can learn about 
a visible demonstration of faith is that is their radical friendship. Their radical friendship. Now, basically, you see this group of friends take this, this man in bed to church. And you're probably thinking, I would love to have friends like that. They could just stay in, stay in bed, and they just take me to... Yeah, bad joke. Um, I just point that out because, listen, we all have particular needs. What we're learning here is that humanity, though we have agency, we have, we have a will that we were meant to utilize, we're, we're profoundly needy people. This man was literally paralyzed, but all of us are struggling with a paralysis of some form or another. We're all in need. We're not, to, we're not created to live in interdependent lives, but interdependent lives. And so, and so what we learn from the Bible when we, is that, that no man is meant to be an island. That no home is meant to be a fortress of solitude, but that human beings were meant to be profoundly interconnected. And therefore, breaking through this roof and lowering the paralytic end, Jesus is saying something not just about his faith, but he's saying something about all of their faith. It's an it's a interesting verse there where he says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. When he sees their faith, he's saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, what's going on there? What he's not doing, he's not parsing out their faith from each other. He's not, and he's not saying, your faith is now being given to this man. What he's saying is, is that all of this came about because of your individual faith working together. Your individual faith working together as a group of friends, supporting one another. So that one can get to Jesus. They exercise their will in radical ways to be radical friends. So, um, one, of the, one of the things that I, I think is fascinating about this passage, and there's many of, of opportunities like this in the Bible, is we get these very rich depictions of historical events but with little detail. But because we've lived our own human lives, we can fill in the gaps. We can deduce truthful behavior and truthful moments and begin to understand a little bit better how their faith may have brought them to this particular place. Now put yourself in their shoes. What kind of conversation is, being, is taking place as they move from his bed and his home to where Jesus is actually at. Who starts that conversation? These are all people of faith, right? Who starts that conversation? Was it the paralyzed man heard a rumor of Jesus who asks his friends, please take me there? Or is it their friends who are actually saying, I saw this leper was cured. I, I want to take my friend to see him. We don't know. But it's probably... A little bit of everything, right? And what takes place as they're going from one place to another? Is it the paralyzed man who is saying, I know I'm heavy, don't stop? Or is it the friend saying, don't be afraid, he won't drop you? 
all of these human experiences taking place. As they get to the door, are they discouraged? Maybe for a moment. But they say they'll find a way. They begin to get innovative. They begin to create. Their radical faith becomes actualized in their relationships, in their friendships. And so what they end up doing is they maneuver. And you can imagine, put yourself in that bed. Or put yourself there lowering him in or about to tear off the roof. How would you feel? I think you might feel feelings of fear, embarrassment. I can't believe I'm doing this. I can't afford to destroy this man's home. This is so inappropriate. We could just wait for people to dissipate. But they don't do any of that. In some way, they're all encouraging each other. They're all committed to this. They're going to see this through. And they lower him into the ground. And Jesus, or not into the ground, they lower him into the room. And Jesus affirms them. Friends are a powerful resource for us. In a professional city, it's often easier for us to get strangers to do the things that we need to get done rather than ask our friends to help. We're not good as Americans or New Yorkers at shucking off or dismissing the rugged individualism of your country. We're not good at saying, I'm not self-sufficient. I actually need help. I can't do this on my own. In this book we've been reading, uh, Next Door, uh, as it is in heaven, they say that in those early days of television, they were depicting these families that were supposed to be uh, the goal, the, the most beautiful depiction of a family. But, and it was supposed to look all harmonious and loving. But what they were saying was they were creating a family of utter self-sufficiency, that they didn't need to receive help from anybody. In fact, it'd be an offense they would say, we don't take charity from anyone, as if that were noble. We've been shaped and groomed by other narratives. But the Bible says we're going to have radical friendships that are profoundly interdependent so that we can do things like this, create radical access for others, experience the radical access of Christ ourselves. We can't do it without, some, without uh, each other because whether we may not be physically paralyzed, spiritually speaking, we're incapable of many things. We're incapable of getting to God on our own. So you're a resource. I'd like to think that the people that carried this man were not his best friends. I'd like to think that they in some way said, I need the strongest people in our neighborhood. I need, it doesn't matter if I've had a falling out with Joe. We need his strength. So he picks out particular, particular people. That's the kind of resources a community needs to be. A radical community of radical friendships imbued with grace to bring people to Christ. Uh, 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 Eugene Peterson says we are a community 
We are not uh, ourselves by ourselves. We are born into communities. We live in communities and we die in communities. Humans are not solitary, self-sufficient creatures. And they knew that about themselves. And as they tried to bring their friend to Jesus, they realized there was no plan B. No plan B. They're either going to lower him and he's going to lay there heartbroken and humiliated. Or he's going to get up and walk. Because they're probably not going to be able to bring him back up. There's no plan B. Uh, a friend of mine um, has been a pastor here in the city for a long time. And he said, you know, I've done dozens and dozens of weddings. I've done a lot of baptisms. And I think this is somewhat unique, but in his case, uh, it proves a point. He said, I've never done a funeral in New York City. I've never done a funeral here. And I asked why. And I know this man is deeply enmeshed in this city. And he said, because people come here to live, but they don't stay to die. Because they don't see this as their home. They don't see this as their community. And when the threshold is met in terms of your suffering or your sacrifice, you move back to the place that you actually believe is your home. And you go to there to die. If that's true, that impacts a society. It impacts a culture and it impacts our relationships. How radical are our friendships? How radical are, are our lives? Jesus is the most radically generous of friends because he gives the paralytic more than he wants, doesn't he? But he gives him exactly what he needs. And this just brings us to the third point. And that is the radical power of Christ. You know, let's just, let's, let's say what the Bible teaches, right? And that is, is that nobody in here is more spiritual than another. Nobody here is smarter, spiritually speaking, or uh, as we need to be, or smarter than one another. We're not more insightful. We're not more intrinsically more loving than the next. Nobody is better than another. That's what the scriptures teach about humanity. And yet, some people tear the roof off of buildings to get to Christ. Why is that? Now, many people would say it's because of suffering. That suffering brings people to a place where they feel like they have nowhere else to turn. They turn to God. And that's true. But let's also remember that suffering actually is also an, not just an on-ramp to relationship with God, it's an off-ramp too. Because suffering brings about questions and doubts and, and struggles that actually leave people wanting less of God, not more. And so suffering is an occasion from which you experience God. But it, people don't get to that place in just one particular way. But here's one way that I think this community actually got closer to Jesus. And that was because Jesus demonstrated power in ways that nobody had ever seen. And he wielded it in ways in, that everybody had always hoped somebody would. That he had the power to heal lepers, have somebody get up and walk. And he wielded it in a sacrificial way that was beautiful that made vulnerable people feel safe. An appropriate use of power is, is so persuasive. 
And that's what we see here, the radicalness of Jesus' power. Look, he has, a, he has a healing power. Take up your mat and walk. He says Jesus has a hearing power that he's able to deduce by his spirit the thoughts of the hearts of the people in that room. He has the power to forgive sins, which, by the way, in the Bible is only reserved for God. So he has all of these, this power, and yet we also recognize that for modern people, power is a real issue for us. And who holds power in the room is very important. It's something we're very attuned to. And for Jesus to come in and say, or for a Christian to come and say, Jesus forgives sins, does not necessarily make people feel really good or safe. Because the knee-jerk reaction is, I don't know even if I believe in sin, but I'm not sure I'm going to allow a person in a position of power uh, the exposure to my own vulnerability. Because people in positions of power tend to abuse that power. In the church and outside the church. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He takes his power to bless people. He takes his power to strengthen people. He takes his power uh, to bring healing to their vulnerabilities. The beautiful, radical use of Jesus' power is that he takes on people's vulnerabilities by his power. That's the way the power should actually be used. Jesus gives his power away like a good friend who comes to your aid and says, hey, let's solve this problem. Let me figure out what I can do. He doesn't lord himself, even though he is lord, over you. He enters into the space at the same plane and solves the problem as a friend with you. Let me do what I can do to help you. And when it comes to human sin, you know who we need in the room? Not the people that we like the most. We need the strongest person in the room. We need the most powerful person in the room. And that's, of course, Jesus. And what Jesus does is he lays down his life. He uses his power. His, he becomes vulnerable to restore our rebellious uh, relationship with God. Now, here it gets to the question, and just to wrap us up, he asks this very provocative question as a demonstration of his capabilities. He says, what is easier? Is it easier for me to forgive, to say your, your sins are forgiven or to take up your mat and walk? Now, what is easier? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because you can't verify that. That's an act of faith. But what's really hard is to say, take up your mat and walk because you have to do it right now. And he says what? He takes the hard road. He says, take up your mat and walk. And that guy takes up his mat and he walks. And what a walk that would be. How freeing. That would be as proof that Jesus can actually do the thing that he really needs. See, imagine the friends as he's being lowered into the room 
as he's about to be healed, how excited they would be to see this friend leap for joy, to run, to dance, so on and so forth. Maybe they'd never seen that before. And Jesus, what a letdown he was when he says your sins are forgiven. They wanted more, but Jesus, because he knows us so well, doesn't just provide what we ask for, doesn't just provide what we want. He provides what we really need, which is the which is the mark of a true friend. What kind of friend can we be in this city? We can be kind, the kinds of friends that create radical access. We can be the kinds of friends that create incredible relationships. But what's really transformative is how we use our power in this city. And if we just do power status quo in here and we take professional culture and we bring it into the church, we will look no different than anybody else. But if we use the kind of power that says your life for my, or my life for yours, in which people feel like they can bring their vulnerabilities to be healed, they will actually follow you and making radical access for others. That's the call of the Christian life. Let's pray.